Hello, I'm Jonathan Smelly, a public relations major at SMU. Welcome to Hello Hilltop. Today, I'm excited and truly honored to be interviewing Dr. Rita Kirk. Dr. Kirk was one of my first teachers at SMU that ignited a spark for my studies and with whom I hold great admiration. Dr. Kirk specializes in the analysis of public arguments in the successful and ethical implementation of communication campaigns. She has also studied hate speech and has written numerous books and papers on the topic. SMU has also recognized her by awarding her the M Award, one of the highest honors awarded at SMU. So Dr. Kirk, I want to start by asking you how you ended up at SMU and if you had any moments that have stood out to you along the way. Well, there's so many reasons I ended up at SMU. Um, I, I want to go back to, to a thing that happened to me in 1977, and I was a graduate student um, working on my master's degree at that point. I had been a debate coach at University of Arkansas, and the people at SMU were running the National High School Debate Tournament, and they were looking for judges and called and asked if I would come to do that. So a friend of mine uh, was married and her husband was going to the SMU Law School, living on campus, and, and she invited me to stay with him. So I got a chance to spend four or five days here judging the national debate contest. When I was walking down the boulevard one day, I said to myself, these have to be the luckiest people on the earth to get to be at SMU. And I think at that moment, I must have called it to me spiritually. So. Fast forward all these years, and um, like most professors, you make your money by being a professional gypsy. You bounce around from college to college, always doing a little bit better the next time. Um, and at that time, I was married, and my husband was also a professor. And we had uh, two job offers in uh, Chicago. Uh, we had two that were on the East Coast in a similar uh, location, and we had SMU and TCU. And there was just no doubt in either of our minds uh, where we were going. He had an affinity for TCU, me for SMU. It was a homecoming. I was so excited to have that dream fulfilled. The, um, the call to your spirit must have been strong because luckily for us, you're still here. So um, when you were first starting out at SMU, how did it feel to be one of the first women to be teaching at such a college? And on top of that, to go on and chair the division of public relations and to essentially create it out of nothing? Well, I, I didn't really create it. There was a large uh, communication division, and it was um, the advertising, journalism, uh, cinema, television, film. It had several names for that, uh, public relations. Um, so they were all in this one large, huge faculty. Um, at one point, the university president at the time when he came in said that he was going to eliminate communication across the board at SMU. And his reason for that is that he didn't think it was a very academic subject and he didn't think that it was really worthy of people spending much time and devotion to. So he had sent out the word um, and there, one of the reasons that our board was formed our uh, professional advisory board was because it was the communication folks that were uh, leading the industry in Dallas that joined together and went in to talk to the president and said, oh, no, 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 no. Don't know what it is that you're seeing. It's not what the field is about. It's important that this field continue. So this was before I got here. And I was hired out of that where um, the university president said that if you're going to do this, then I want you to hire solid academics. I want people who publish and who research. 
Um, and uh, there were three or four of us that were brought in in a couple of years to try to start turning things around. So when that huge program broke up, um, I was asked to be the chair of what is now corporate communication and public affairs. Initially, it was just public relations uh, when we first started. There were a lot of people involved, I guess, to say that I wasn't the person that just created the whole thing whole cloth. Yes, ma'am. I see that. So um, when in your professional career did you realize that you had an affinity for hate speech? Was it during your time at SMU? I know that from my free speech and First Amendment class and now my political persuasion class with you, that you have studied all forms of hate speech and have stories from interviewing Hitler's pollster and top members of the KKK that are just absolutely fascinating. I was hoping that you could recap some of your experiences for us and tell us what you were hoping to learn or did learn. Yeah, well, the first job that I had after I completed my PhD was in Alabama, and I uh, was working as a political consultant as well, so doing both teaching and practicing um, as a, a political consultant. One of my clients was the then a um, United States congressman who had been serving for 18 years, decided that he wanted to run for governor of the state and asked me to be one of his uh, consultants. I actually wrote about this in um, the book that I wrote on the topic that was called uh, Political Empiricism, Communication Strategies in State and Regional Elections. It, it, does that sound like somebody who was wanting tenure or something? So I was trying to write this very brainiac book about what it is that we did. Uh, but in that um, chapter where I talked about what happened, the somebody, and this was the era, it sounds so so old school, where if you ordered your stationery, uh, it came in by bus from a printer that was downstate somewhere. Well, somebody had ordered stationery for the candidate and sent to our major donors. And it said things like, um, you know, you, the, the people who control this campaign are going to tell you that it's not true, but you're one of our insiders, so you know differently. So everything that you would say to defend yourself was, you know, presaged out there on doing that. And I became fixated by what if you were using hate as a stratagem, and a stratagem is an artificer, a trick of war. So if you were trying to use hate to divide people and to uh, win your way, how would you do it? Because this was a perfect example of that happening. And in the midst of this, the FBI, because this was election tampering, the FBI actually was in our campaign offices counting how many pieces of stationery do we have. And in the old IBM Selectric days, um, I mean, we had computers, but they weren't plentiful. They were literally taking the ribbons and trying to see if there were any uh, imprints on the ribbons that would let them find out who had written the uh, initial letter. Um, so that's what started it. It was this, what if you use that as a stratagem and how would people use hate as a motivator? And it was uh, something that people hadn't written about. So I became quite fascinated with that. So you were quite literally one of the pioneers for studying hate speech in America. I don't know if I was a pioneer, um, but it was certainly a great addition to it. The, the book won all kinds of awards, including uh, 
an award for the outstanding book on human rights in North America, one of the great honors that I had. And um, at the time, as a young academic, I was uh, the BBC called in for an interview, couldn't understand that somebody would uh, actually study hate speech. So we had a, a very nice long interview on the BBC. It was kind of, it was very cool. Um, but I will also tell you that it affects your soul. What you study and what you look at um, eats into you and it makes you think very carefully about what you're learning. Of course, yeah, I can see how that can haunt you. So when you were interviewing Hitler's pollster and members of the KKK, what did you take out of those experiences? So when I was working on my PhD, um, Elizabeth Noel Neumann uh, was one of our guest lecturers and she was Hitler's pollster. Mm -hmm. So to actually talk to somebody, we don't really think about Hitler having a pollster, right? We just somehow think that somehow this evil guy came in and uh, somehow magically got to the top. but. She was using early techniques of political opinion polling. And we use, uh, get like Gallup and Roper, we use this thing that's called a snapshot in time. And if you put enough of those together, it's like one of those little things you did when you were a kid, a little drawing book and each page has a, like a horse, but mm -hmm. one little part is moving at a time. And when you flip it together, like a flip book, it makes it look like the horse is actually running. Well, that's the way we were doing polling. Um, in the United States is this, you take enough of them, you'll begin to see movement that happens. Um, she was using a completely different technique. And again, I was fascinated. It made more sense to me as a theoretical model than the snapshot in, in time of Gallup and Roper. So I had the opportunity to study with her when I was at Mizzou. Um, and I also had the opportunity to study with the man who developed Q sorting. We don't really think that there was a day when people didn't know that there were any mathematical materials behind um, polling, for example. Like, how many people do you have to poll in order to get a reading of a much larger population? And those are mathematical formulas that were formed by a, a group of three Oxford folks. And the one that I studied was a psychological modeling process called Q methodology that was developed by uh, William Stevenson. And I had, again, the opportunity to study with him so that the early pioneers that were doing all of this war research, I came along just at the right time to be able to study with kind of the trailing ends of those. I was fascinated by it. I'm always so blown away by your stories and all that I get to learn from you. I just cannot imagine what it was like to conduct such interviews and get to experience all of this firsthand. Um, wow. Now, I know you just experiences are going to be equally interesting. You just don't know that yet, but you're going to come across people and you're going to learn from people and you're going to have things happen to you that are kind of beyond your wildest imagination. Well, I hope you're right. And I can't wait for the opportunities ahead. So I know you spoke briefly about one of your books that you've already written, but I heard your latest book just got published this past week or two. Can you tell us a bit about your new book? I sure can. It's a book that's called Ethics at the Heart of Higher Education. I've been really lucky for the last 10 years to serve as the director of the McGuire Center for Ethics and Public Responsibility at SNU. And just last year was named its first um, endowed director called the William F. May Endowed Director of the Center. Um, thanks to the generosity of our founder, Carrie McGuire. So Carrie had had this vision of what it would mean to a university to have a university-wide ethics center. 
And he had um, been a member of our board of trustees back in the dark days when uh, we were kicked out of football and, and had to shut down all of our athletic programs for having one of the biggest cheating scandals in college football history. As a result of that, Kerry thought it was really important. He, he said, you know, we didn't get here by ourselves. We got here incrementally, making one bad choice at a time and ignoring one bad decision at a time until we got to the point where we couldn't really tell right from wrong. So he was fascinated, just like I had been fascinated with hate speech. Um, Kerry was really fascinated by how do we get to a community that loses its way ethically? So the center was put into place to try to respond to that. So Candy Crespo, who's the associate director of the center, and I decided it would be about time and a great tribute to him for the 25th anniversary, which we're celebrating this year of the center, to have every current and former endowed ethics chair, that's the Skurlock chair and the McGuire ethics chair, and uh, every current and former center director at the McGuire Ethics Center. And we added uh, one of the UT Southwestern um, people as well that we work in partnership over the years um, to write a chapter about what we thought was a really important topic, ethics at the heart of higher education, why we teach ethics and does it matter? So it is um, just a magnificent book with some amazing authors like Charlie Curran, who is one of the, United States foremost authorities on um, religious ethics. Um, Robin Levin, our current McGuire uh, uh, ethics chair as well. And it's just a, an amazing, um, really intellectual group of people who got together and, and considered that proposition. It sounds amazing and really well thought out and everything. If we wanted to go and pick up a copy of this, where could we go? You can get it on Amazon. Perfect. <laughs> Well, I'll definitely have to go buy myself a copy then. <laughs> Another thing that I truly admire about you, Dr. Kirk, is that your passion for teaching doesn't just stop in Dallas. You frequently travel to DC to take interested in political communication and PR majors to see how life works on the Hill. And for the past two decades, you have traveled as far as London with students and have headed the SMU in London communications program during your summers. I was hoping you could tell us why you have made it such a strong pillar in your life to travel and to teach beyond just Dallas. You know, I, two things. One of them is that I love to learn. It's just something that um, I'm drawn to. I want to learn and I realized pretty early, which I was lucky uh, enough to do, that I could learn a lot from other people as opposed to thinking that I knew it all. So I learn from students every time they do a paper, every time they write um, an exam of some sort where they're asked to contemplate a question. Um, and, and the second thing is that I'm an experiential learner. So for me, it's about um, if I see it and I can see and one of the, the mantras that I'm and you, almost any student will say that they've heard me say, is you're only as good as the best you've ever seen. So if you really want to learn, you have to see what the best look like. And then it doesn't seem so insurmountable to, um, you know, meet or beat that. So when we take students to Washington, D.C. as an example, um, and they see our students who are anything from a press secretary uh, up to, right now we have one of our alumnus who's the special assistant to the secretary general of the UN. So once you see those folks and you realize they were in these classes, they took the same things that you're taking now, 
um, and look at where their life career went. Look at all of the different ways that they could have meaningful careers um, in politics and in business. Um, then you begin to, and you meet them and you share this experience. You begin to say, I can do that. I think Michael Jordan did that for kids playing basketball, right? Nobody had ever seen somebody play basketball like Michael Jordan. And then suddenly every little kid is out there trying to do these shots and look where we are today. So I think our field is largely the same thing. Uh, when I take you to London or when I take you to DC or, or in, when we're here in class, I get really excited. I know that sounds so crazy, right? But I get really excited to help show you um, a, a different world and one that I think is exciting and dynamic and interesting. And I just sometimes hope that people find it as interesting as I do. They probably don't, but <laughs> I try at any rate. As someone who has gone abroad with you to London, I can attest that going beyond the confines of our traditional classroom and to turn that classroom into the real world where we learn by talking to leaders in our industry, it, it really does change your perspective for the better and it makes you realize that you can do this. And I know personally for me, I felt that I learned more in London than I could have by taking the exact same class here in Dallas. Well, um, Dr. Kirk, I'm afraid that that's nearly all the time we have left for today. But before we wrap up, I was wondering, is there anything else you want to add that may be crucial to your story or do you have any other comments? I guess the other one thing that is part of my story is that I also grew up during the second wave of feminism. So that's also been a really important issue to me. I, I have been fortunate enough to um, mow down some barriers that were facing me. I remember being told, for example, at one point early in my college career, um, that I really couldn't major in political science because, and this is a direct quote, what would a woman do with that? Mm -hmm. um, then of course I go out to be a political consultant at the end, but there are a lot of barriers that are put up for all kinds of people for all kinds of reasons. And we just don't have to believe those barriers. We can um, just follow our passions. And I think more than trying to be strident necessarily, there are some people that are called to that, but more than being strident is to do what you were given to do, what God granted you in terms of your talents and your abilities, and just to use that and let the chips fall where they may. Well, Dr. Kirk, I just wanted to say thank you for coming out and being our guest here on Hello Hilltop today. We also want to say thank you to our listeners. And don't forget to catch our other podcasts on SoundCloud, iTunes, and more. Make sure to follow us on social media by visiting our Facebook and Instagram accounts at SMU Hello Hilltop. Again, that's at SMU Hello Hilltop, where you can find behind-the-scenes info and upcoming podcasts. Until next time, we'll see you on the Hilltop.